You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And we are here discussing a novel by a friend of ours, Jim Noy of The Invisible Event, put out The Red Death Murders, which was based on the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Mask of the Red Death. He told us, you know, gosh, what a perfect setup for a murder mystery. It's, It's unsurprising that Poe ended up as the uh, patron founder of Murder Mystery after writing a story such as this, but he didn't turn it into a mystery himself, so Jim Noy of The Invisible Event stepped up to do that. We are reading parts one and two of that story today, and Herds, you are challenged with solving this novel. Yeah, we're going to see how I go, I guess. I'm excited. There's, There's not that many characters in the actual murder of this murder mystery, but they all have two names like they have a, a, a you know a given name and a family name and they kind of use them interchangeably to refer to each other they're not without political significance when they do so so i'm going to do my best to keep these characters straight thankfully there is a character list on the like floor plan of the castle it's true it's a it's a lovely very straightforward not at all complicated <laughs> building map yeah look it's just you know it's the first floor it's good you don't need more than one floor when you're doing a a, a castle murder mystery with parapets and six spiraling staircases and a dungeon and the revel rooms and all these other rooms that are, I'm sure will be important down the line. But in terms of keeping track of the like eight or so characters in the book, it's perfect. It's fantastic. So we are in the middle of the red death, yeah. a plague that has beset the kingdom of Prince Prospero. We follow the lockdown procedures of a group of loyal members of the prince's court as they survive in his tower away, isolated from the Red Death. The novel starts with the discovery of a body in the lavatory at the top of the tower, and then soon thereafter, another man dies to the Red Death inside this supposedly safe place, and hell has uh, already, it seems, broken loose. Yeah, it's great. I mean, obviously starting the book off with a 13-year-old child is is the protagonist of this book, which is already in- Which is fantastic. I thought it was going to be a flashback and then we like cut forward to the actual story, but no, we're just following Thomas, little Tom, 13-year-old child and his adventures as everybody asks him big grown-up questions that he doesn't have the answers for. And yeah, we have a locked room mystery and and this like horrible plague and all the science behind it. It's it's wild. I do really like the way that we introduce Thomas as the detective because the two brothers that he's been living with and that he is sort of the servant of have this stoush where they're like, oh, well, you know, Sir Oswin Bassingham couldn't have died like this. Thomas, you seem to solve all of our problems for us. Why don't <laughs> you have a guess at how he died and they get him to inspect the body as this like awful. 13-year-old kid is struggling to like cope with the image to begin with it's it's terrible but very entertaining it's great tonally and to kind of set you up for the expectations of the time yeah right because this is a medieval murder mystery mm-hmm. so having a 13 year old child it explicitly says that like he's seen dead bodies before yeah we're, we're setting up the idea that death is commonplace in this world and that we're not horrified by that like death in the home is not oh how could it possibly happen it's how could it happen with these trusted allies nearby? The other thing that's really great about Thomas as a perspective character, I think, too, is that like we take a very serious lens to the impact that it is having on him. Like we're not shy about the fact that he's struggling to deal with these things, but also 
It's sort of the right tone for the sort of murder mystery joviality that Jim drips in through the story. There's one line where they're talking about how the first locked room is set up and the narration says, no, the solution to this would be cleverer than that. And I feel so like silly. it's really Jim. silly. It's incredible. Jim, silly. what are you doing? <laughs> but I, I honestly, I laughed when I saw that. I was like, come on. It would be much cleverer. Jim Noy is much cleverer than this 13-year-old boy. I, I love know. that so but much. It's, it's great that Thomas is like the right canvas for that sort of silly humor, I think. There's commentary on the idea of lockdowns, you know, and, and disease where- Yes, can you tell this book was written <laughs> during the pandemic? I, I certainly couldn't. Where these people believe that if they just lock themselves up in their tower for- a set period of time, then everything will blow over. Yeah. But of course they get impatient. They say, well, we can't just keep sitting here forever. Yeah. Cause they've been in there for like 200 days or whatever. And the thing that's interesting about that is that they keep mentioning the thousand days war that they all became allies in, in the first place. And it's never like directly pitted as a contrast, but it's clearly meant to be there that the pressure of this environment is somehow comparable to three years of war. Yeah, it's really interesting, the idea that we're, we're talking about like time dilation and, and perspective, because staying inside for, I mean, 200 days is a long period of time, obviously, but like you perceive that as much longer than it is. It's like when you get closer to a black hole, right? And you begin to you turn into spaghetti. It's true. The Red Death murders really is the black hole of murder mysteries. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. That's what I'm trying to say. There is an interesting kind of color of science this book too, with the way that Highstone, he's like interested in how the Red Death actually works. And they talk about the idea of being like a carrier of the disease which is like a real thing in science. But the way that Jim has inserted that into this story kind of makes sense for the science at the time, which I really enjoyed. There's a lot of stuff like that. It is It is very nice the way that he kind of integrates their ignorance of things that are commonplace to us. Well, he uses um, myth, which I thought was really cool, yes. right? He uses this, the man who would never die as a way of explaining their understanding of, of scientific principles, even if they don't fully understand the science themselves, which I think is really, really awesome. Yeah. And we're like, we're with the prince of a great court. Like we are watching the the myth that would come happen. You know, this is Arthur and his knights just way more debaucherous and with a much more colorful room instead of a table. <laughs> it's true. Several colorful rooms, every, every color of the rainbow. The other piece of imagery of the castle that I really, really liked was um, Thomas as a young boy when he's talking about the way that he feels about people. The first time we get this is when we're looking at the scene of Sir Oswin's death mm. and he's reflecting on the lavatory and how it actually used to be a beautiful way to look out at the castle grounds. With his love, with his lady love. They, oh, yeah, until so they discovered sad. they needed a toilet in this building. And yeah. oh God, what, what fantastic, what fantastic <laughs> narrative imagery, Jim, that's, that's so understatedly cruel of, of you to poor Thomas. Can I tell you what I really enjoyed? Because we get a, we get a, we get a heat praise in this book. I enjoy the structural way that Jim doles out clues and descriptions of the various environmental sort of set pieces of the castle. Like there are a lot of locations that are mentioned because they're part of what's going on in the story and contain clues to solve the mystery, but are not actually discussed in detail until much later. There are lots of instances in the book where Jim will sort of mention something that is clearly important to the mystery, but he doesn't want you to focus on it just yet. So he'll 
elaborate on it further down the line when you don't think it's as relevant. And I, I really enjoyed seeing those nods sort of back and forth in the timeline, the book. It is really impressive how precise Jim is with his language in a lot of places, but also, can I say, makes the first page of the novel stick out like a sore thumb. I don't know if you felt this as well, Herds. Uh-huh. There are like 18 times too many adjectives as needed it's to be on the first Look, page of the book. It's clearly intended to be Sir Thomas's sensory overload. Like this is I a know. very visceral moment. Like, He's feeling all the feelings, but it is pretty silly. It makes sense if you think about it, but because you don't know who Thomas is as you're reading it, it's like, what what word soup is going on here? Yeah, he's shivering, everything's rising. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Once you have survived that page, excellent. <laughs> I love it. Great idea. But I, I do wonder if some people would read that and go, eh, you know, maybe this book's going to be a bit too much. Yeah. <laughs> No, it definitely settles in as it goes along, especially when we start getting into the the character drama between the different knights and nobles and such. Coming up later in the show, we're going to dive into the mystery section and Herds is going to have to pose his solution oh, to the Red Death Murders by Jim Noy. This is Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour, here on 2SER 107.3. Mm. Stick around, more to come. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Jim Noyes, The Red Death Murders. It's our first week talking about the book, and we decided, since we have the man's remote Greek holiday island phone number, <laughs> that we should we should get him on and ask a few questions about this book f- from paradise. Jim, welcome to Death of the Reader. It's wonderful to have you back. It is always a delight to be here with you guys thank you so much for getting me involved honestly the last time we had you on the show i never would have guessed until you told us at the end of that recording session that we'd one day be covering a book of your own i know right it's super exciting to to have that in our hands i guess the first thing i kind of wanted to get into jim was that you know you've said in several places around the internet that mask of the red death was the perfect poe story to become a murder mystery because of all the kind of golden agey elements that embed themselves into the original story unassumingly. What mm. made you jump from having that thought to the terrible burden of actually writing a novel? <laughs> um, it was a combination of things. Firstly, when I had the idea, I obviously had no idea that I was going to turn it into a novel at some point. In- entirely separate to that, I read an Agatha Christie novel, and about 10 pages from the end of the book when the solution to the central crime was revealed, I suddenly realized I had that moment of astonishing insight where you realize what the solution is. And I was like, oh my God, that's so clever. And then the ending of the book was not the ending that I had imagined. The ending of the book was actually extremely disappointing, but I had this really clever, what I thought was really clever central solution. And so I had these entirely two separate thoughts. You'd think you'd put the two together quite quickly, but my my, my brain is not the most communicative organ in in the world sometimes and it took me somewhere <laughs> in the region of about a year and a half to realize that they could actually be part of the same story and then suddenly what i had was a jumping off point and then covid hit and i was unemployed and i was able to just go you know what i need something to do so i'm just gonna i might as well start at that starting point and see if i can make my way to that midpoint of the book and then it just it just kind of rolled from there i really love that i've always said that the 
the, the natural instinct to improve upon somebody else's bad work is a really great creative motivator. Mm. Um, <laughs> I love the idea that you were like, this book had the worst twist I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Even a, a two-year-old could write better than this. And that's where you stepped in. You know? Well, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go quite that far. I would just say because <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to get any hate mail from from all the Agatha Christie simps out there. But like, of yes, you'll say, notice he very carefully hasn't named the book yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy to, of course. It wasn't so much that I felt that it was appallingly bad. It just wasn't as good as what I had anticipated it was going to be. Yeah, you're just saying that you, you could write better than Agatha Christie. I understand. Well, yeah, precisely, precisely. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was curious. We, we've seen a lot of unorthodox protagonists on the show. We've seen fudgy old ladies, large men that literally can't leave their, their armchairs. Mm-hmm. I'm curious why you've chosen a 13-year-old boy to arbitrate detective justice? Yeah, and that's, that, that's a really good question. Because of the nature of the crimes I wanted to write about, because of the impossible crime where you've got somebody locked in a room with bits of string wrapped around nails holding the door shut and that kind of thing, and you know, there's this poisoning that happens halfway through, I knew what I wanted to have was a relatively simplistic technological age for the setting of the book. Originally, the killing of the guy in the privy with with the string wrapped around it, I originally uh, conceived of it as like a a, a Western with cowboys, funnily enough. It was originally going to be a short story. There's something about the castle setting that just made me think medieval. Now, the problem with that is medieval, as 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 a turn of phrase used to refer to an historical era covers about 500 years. And so what I didn't want to do was run into anachronistic problems where I was picking something from 1400 that, you know, and then mixing it with something from 1800, because not that I'm sure anybody would care, but it would kind of bother me. What I what I then did was I kind of took a sidestep and went into this entirely fictional timeline. The adults, everybody living in that historical timeline would know what was going on. So what I needed was someone who was almost as ignorant as the reader to be your point of view character. Hence, I have Thomas, who is a 13-year-old boy who has a certain understanding of historical events, which, you know, his reflections on these historical events kind of inform, I hope, inform the background of the book. So I'm sorry, that's a very long answer, but I, I quite a lot of thought... It's went, very illuminating. Well, yeah, thank you. Quite <laughs> a lot of thought went into how do I inform the reader of these 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 things without just sitting them down and lecturing at them Dan Brown style. Yeah. Um, and the best, like I said, the best way to do that is to just find someone who who has a high degree of ignorance. And Thomas is the most ignorant person in that castle. Jim Noy on children. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to dive bomb on your comments about how you, you thought of this as a Western. Were you going to do a, a true grit? Have you have you seen either version of that film? I, I've seen the John Wayne version and I've read the book. Because yeah. the whole narrative is about like a younger character seeking revenge and being lectured by the older character about what that revenge actually entails. Is that more along the lines of what you're imagining in your original novel or? No, no, that, that's a good question. So the, the, um, <laughs> the idea of it as a Western came from watching the Western 310 to Yuma. The, the oh my goodness. <laughs> 310 yes. to I can't believe I didn't pick that. Yes. What a great film. No. So it was, it was while watching 310 to Yuma, which contains another magnificent performance from Ben Foster, who is probably oh, yeah. my favorite undersung actor of, of, of his generation. He's phenomenal. And I just, it was, I, I won't bore you with it, but essentially there is a point in that film where I was like, oh my God, this would make a really interesting thing to spin out into sort of detective fiction stuff. I love it. I think the other thing that's really interesting about Thomas in that respect that you're speaking about is that really it's sort of 
fundamentalizing a particular part of the Watson archetype. He is the audience's lens into the scene. He is the dumber person in the story so that you have a footing. You're creating like a bit of an extra distance with Thomas that you don't normally get with the Watson archetype because most readers would be adults. Sure. No, and and that's part of what I was trying to get at. And it was crucial to me exactly that, that, that the reader has that distance and is able to kind of view it dispassionately to a certain extent. Because obviously, I mean, the whole thing is just an exercise in arrogance, and you're just trying to prove to the reader how clever you are, because you want to give them every opportunity to still, you know, fail to solve it come come the final instance. You want that final chapter to be a surprise. Yeah, I guess the last thing before we let you go uh, this week, and we're going to have you back for our third episode, is that there's a few lines dotted throughout the story that actually quote Mask of the Red Death directly. Yes, yes. I wanted to know how you kind of coped with the daunting task of trying to match the tone of Edgar Allan Poe. I've never written anything fictional of any length before, and my concern was that tonally it would start to veer all over the place. And so essentially for me, putting those direct quotes from Poe's story in were a way to ensure a consistency about the tone. Um, it wasn't so much the daunting challenge of, of, of trying to match Poe. It was sort of getting a hand up from Poe. You know, and I've, I've included the, the, the text of The Mask of the Red Death at the back and highlighted a couple of instances in the story that were particularly meaningful for me. And there are, there are some descriptions in there that are just perfection. There's one about the ringing of a bell that I used early on. There's one about the shape that, that, that the parties took. There's a description of one of these rebels with all these masked figures. And again, it's just absolute tonal perfection. So as well, why on earth would you want to try to rewrite that when you've got this, this, this perfect exemplification of it? mercifully copyright free right (laughs) it's interesting too because i think like on the first pages of the book when we're looking at thomas's view of oswin's death like you did really shoot for that very thick distorted tone that the rebels have um and tried to kind of capture how out of scope it was for thomas to be seeing this and i thought that was that was a really fun way to open that's very kind thank you very very bold kind of going to like immediately disorient on the first page of a book the term locked room mystery has become grotesquely perverted in recent years to mean a closed circle mystery and i wanted it to be very clear from the start that there was definitely some impossible crime in this so it was important to start with oswin's death but equally, you're trying to get the reader into your unusual because you've got people going, well, what, what time period is this? What age is this? Is this person? There, there are certain things that help ground your narrative. I think I rewrote the first chapter more times than any other chapter <laughs> because there's so much work you're trying to do to get everybody kind of settled and on a comfortable footing as, as early as possible. I think, Jim, that is a, a, a wonderful place to leave our discussion for this week. And I'm looking forward to having you back to dive into the full spoilers. Beautiful. Thank you very much indeed. I, I look forward to seeing what you guys make of it. I'm excited to give this a crack. I'm going to see if we can solve this novel. It's going to be fun. This is Death of the Reader. We'll be back with more of The Red Death Murders by Jim Noy in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here discussing The Red Death Murders by Jim Noy. Parts 1 and 2. Herds is in the hot seat and, you know, this is going to be a tough one for you, Herds, because, I mean, the last time we were on this show with Jim Noy 
discussing Theodore Roscoe's Murder on the Way, we absolutely walloped that book, which Jim had put his love and care into having brought back into the world questionable taste at best. Wow. Uh, I can't believe you just said that about friend of the show, Jim Noy's murder mystery taste. Are you telling me that this book is also of questionable taste? No, no. I mean, the the characters in this novel definitely have questionable taste. There's some real weird behaviors that go on, but I guess Herds. I look, I got to figure out where to begin is, is the problem here. Cause there's a lot going on. I wanted to ask you Herds, if you had any thoughts about the mask of the Red Death and how it relates to what Jim has written. It seems right that this story takes place after that. Tarrington Fenwick has left after being the one that runs around with the mask. There is clearly something more going on with two men dead in a murder mystery, and one of them definitely totally died of natural causes, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. I mean, clearly these characters are not dying from the Red Death. They're being murdered, right? Like that's- But he's, he's, that's, got, he's got the blood got in his s- eyes. How, how could- Yeah, but he's got a big sword in his chest. <laughs> what are you talking about? Shut up. He's got a big sword through his chest. How did the chest. blood get into his eyes? If he's already dead from the mm-hmm. sword in his chest, what happened to the- How did the blood get into his That's a good eyes? question. I'm sure that I will definitely be able to tell you how that happened today. <laughs> I feel like you might be teasing me because that particular mystery is difficult to solve right now. Because the other thing is, right, that- Oswin, the character who is dead on the opening page, is in theory the man who will not die. The only person who can safely handle infected things and thus could murder with the Red Death because he'd be safe from it himself. But yet it seems someone might be doing that. That's that's entirely possible. Although I do want to say, shall we shall we tackle this locked room mystery? Because I By all means. I want to point out that we're dealing with a locked room because it's like this wooden door. It's held closed from the inside by string or, or rope or whatever. I'll be honest. I'm not sure of the exact mechanism here, but they mentioned that the toilet hole is too small to fit a fist through. But I reckon you could feed some rope through that. And they mention in the book that there's rope that you can get from the winch at the gatehouse. So I'm going to go on record as saying that that's the solution to our locked room. I don't think it's terribly complicated. So you, you reckon that the, the murder method came up the poop chute? Yeah. I assume that you could like maybe the the knife is is jiggered so that it will like cut through the rope and then the rope will fall down through the poop chute. He's clearly been like slashed at the wrists and you know killed with this dagger. So the murder doesn't happen in the locked room. The door is simply locked to make it seem yeah, like Yeah, he's one. killed outside, put in the privy, had his wrist slashed after death and then the the rope is like strung through the poop chute so that it looks like it's locked from the inside. Some some sort of awful rope trick that I despise. Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing is some sort of awful rope trick. <laughs> it's much more clever than a simple bit of sleight of hand. I'm sure it's um, very clever, but it's an awful rope trick. Because look, we don't have a pillar in the center of the room, but we do have a pillar-shaped hole underneath the victim's butt. It's true. You it's can true. Take that out to pasture. Any circular go. object in a square locked room is the solution. <laughs> that's what we've learned over the past. However, however many however years. long. The other thing that's really interesting about trying to deal with this locked room is the way that Jim has set up these spaces outside the castle. I don't know how it felt to you when you first got started in the story, but it seemed to me that the castle was this like amorphous space that 
didn't really have an outside world, at least like mm-hmm. narratively speaking. And then we slowly add in the lands outside. We slowly add in the walls circling the central courtyard. So we're just kind of being drip fed ways that this locked room had potential, but not conclusive access. It's engagingly frustrating. <laughs> it's good fun. The only way into that room apparently is that hole. Personally, I, I would have shown with the crossbow up the butt, but I guess that someone would have noticed that when they went to check the body. So, Well, but if they tied a rope to the crossbow- Then they could yank it out afterwards. You're yeah. so right. That sounds like it would be extremely painful. But yeah, so you've, <laughs> you've resolved your, your how of the two murders. The locked room was a rope that pulled down a device to lock a room. Sure. And the other murder was rats being thrown at the victim or something along sure. those lines. <laughs> no, he's been stabbed with a sword. Somebody stabbed him. What are you talking about? Someone stabbed him. Sorry, I just I just keep forgetting. The sword's so forgettable. I don't I, like. It's just how could you? What do you mean? It's sticking out of his chest. What? What? Isn't it? St- but, he's, he, but he died of the red death. His eyes. His eyes have the red death. No, in you can. He must you have can, died from the red death. No, you can be stabbed and then have a little rat bite you on the shoulder. I, that is totally something that can happen. That's 100% what it is. But I, what I thought you were saying is that your solution was is the rat was holding a sword and someone threw the rat. <sighs> I'm done with you. Can we, can, we talk about, can we talk about Prince Prospero for a minute? Sure. So Prospero is fun. He got assaulted by someone wearing the Red Death clothing. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing, if there's one mystery in this book that I'm like confident in, it's this one. Because Jim doesn't give us a lot of options for solving the disappearance of the, of the Red Death character i assume that the costume was thrown aside in the red room so that you wouldn't notice it was there because it's red and i'm gonna go on a wild guess and say that it was actually sir marcus i'm also going to say that because sir prosper when he comes out for the dinner he wears the thing around his neck and thomas is like arge to hide the bruises i think it's the opposite i think that this is a cunning play For what purpose? I'm not sure, but I assume that Prospero is staging his own assault to weed out naysayers. That's my assumption. You reckon he's staged his own assault? I think so, yeah. Because here's here's what I'm going to say, Hertz. Uh I'm going to say that uh, red is the color of romance, as we know. (laughs) We we spoke about it. Hold on. Were they locked in a passionate embrace? Is that what? (laughs) And his neck is covered to hide the bruises. To hide hickeys. hickeys. He's got hickeys, bro. You know what? I would agree with that. I think that that makes more sense than anything else. I think that Sir William is in a romance with with the prince and this whole killing Sir Oswin thing, which was obviously- Thomas Thomas was the witness. He wouldn't have known- It's true. He didn't what know two, what real two men romance making was. passionate love would have looked he like. He didn't know. And I'm going to say that the murder of, of Sir Oswin through the poop shoot closing trick- <laughs> And uh, terrible <laughs> sentence. <laughs> the murder of Sir Osborne <laughs> through the poop shoot. The poop shoot. That's what it is. What do you I want to feel, call it? I feel so <laughs> infantile <laughs> laughing at this, but it made me giggle. You're not supposed to laugh. We're supposed to be the professionals. Very professional here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kill Osborne through the poop shoot. All that stuff. Like, look, Sir Marcus stages an assault on Prince Prospero. 
Marcus is there to see what's happened, but he doesn't know what's going on. He thinks, oh no, Sir Marcus has attempted to assault the prince. Wait, so he's staging the assault to figure out who actually committed the crimes? Well, because the, the crimes haven't happened yet. I'm not actually sure. I'll be honest. This part eludes me. I assume it's some political power play to do with the uh-huh. fact that Sir Thomas is apparently the new prince. Thomas is the new prince? Apparently. That's what happened at the end of the last part. They were like, bro, you are the son of the prince, which is not true. I'm telling you, he's going to end up being the son of, of, of William. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's the way these stories always go when they're like, you have no father, but actually it was the king, but actually okay, it was your okay. peasant father all along. I have no, I have no further questions. This makes perfect I have no sense to me. Questions either. That's why he's done it. Look, I'm not sure. I'll be honest. I, I am fairly confident that it's Marcus under that robe and that Prince Prospero has not been hurt. I'm not sure why he's done it. I haven't figured that out yet. Also, the killer is Marcus. We didn't actually, I didn't actually say that, but oh. the killer is Marcus the killer is because Marcus. he's trying to cover for his brother. That done. sounds good. That he has access good. to the supplies. He loves his brother. He's like, I don't want my brother to get condemned for attacking the prince. He doesn't really know what's going on. And he is not seen by Lawrence. So Lawrence can't out him as the killer. Done. So, yeah. Hertz, next week on the show, <laughs> you might be thinking to yourself, Flex. What chapter am I reading up to? What part, what part what of the part story even? that I, am I reading up yeah. to? Yeah. Instead, Herds, of a chapter or a part, you are reading up to and including yes. the challenge to the real. Yes. I'm so ready for this. I'm so excited. It's a, it's a long way through this book, and I reckon you probably should have a few answers by the time you get to it. Good. But I'm going to trust Jim Noy in titling it The Challenge to the Reader, mm. that it is, in fact, a challenge just after the end of chapter 24. Look. I'm excited. And with all this talk of lineage and how stupid these nobles are, I'm sure that the opposition to the king, Marcus and and of William, course, will definitely if, be the killers in the story. I'm very excited for that. If Prince Prospero has hickeys, then he can't have a son and he can't have a successor. I agree. It all makes sense. That makes sense to me. I don't see any problems with this theory. I'm ready for my medal. Thank you, Jim Noy. You're listening. <laughs> <laughs> to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. We will be back with Jim Noyes, The Red Death Murders, next week on the show. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. Catch you then. Coming for you, nobles. I'm going to get you. <laughs>